but the result was that we built really like 150 minute communities, right? That where things are two hours away um, and it was difficult to access or to, to even do something, something as simple as get a loaf of bread. You had to get into your car every single time. And that's what we're trying to move away from now. Welcome to the Rising Economy podcast, produced by South Island Prosperity Partnership. This series features leading thinkers and changemakers giving bold insights about the key concerns of our time. This ranges from economic trends to workforce changes, the housing crisis, and the factors impacting cities and our region. My name is Dallas Gisselson. I'm the co-host of today's session with uh, my colleague Ben. And uh, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that we are streaming from uh, our office location in downtown Victoria on the unceded lands of the Lekwungen-speaking people, known today as the Songhees and Esquimalt nations, um, whose relationship and stewardship of these lands uh, continue to this day. So today we're diving into a concept that's been capturing the uh, imagination of urban planners, policymakers, uh, city leaders in many parts of the world, and that is the, the concept of a 15-minute city. So we invited some experts uh, from the region here, uh, experts on planning and architecture, and uh, to join us today uh, to explore with us what this 15-minute uh, city actually is and how it might contribute to transforming our lives, maybe our local economies, our cities, and our neighborhoods. However, there have also been some pushback on these ideas, and some of which even go into the, I would say, the uh, conspiracy uh, theory level. So uh, I think it's uh, healthy to confront some of this and talk about uh, what's what's happening and 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 how people are are reacting to the the idea of a 15 minute city. So to help us dive into these topics, we've gathered a panel of experts in areas ranging from planning, transportation, architecture, and we'll give everyone a quick introduction and and then we'll dive into the conversation. So over to you, Ben, for the intro. Great, thanks, Dallas. So first up, we have Carrie Smart, architect for Cascadia Architecture. Her work centers around her passion for architecture and its ability to make a difference in her community in creative, beautiful, and engaging ways. She's been working in architecture in Victoria since 2001. Her current projects include over 100 units of rental housing and two child care facilities. Her position as a well-respected professional in the community recently launched her into the elected office as a municipal councillor for Oak Bay. She is a member of the CRD Arts Commission, the CRD Climate Action Steering Committee, and is a board director for Dance Victoria. He's passionate about activating public spaces with projects such as the Kitchen Garden Boulevard Project at Big Wheel Burger, a naturalized playground at a Cole Margaret Jenkins School, Broad Street Public Seating, and a public gathering space at Pemberton Park. Our next guest is Ray Stratzbach. Ray is a longtime educator, analyst, and advocate for sustainable cities and active transportation. He's the principal of R Street's Urban Strategies, which provides specialized services in policy, communications, writing, and research for urban and transportation planning. Ray teaches urban transportation in the geography department at UVic and is the president of the Greater Victoria Placemaking Industry, a volunteer-led nonprofit that delivers and promotes local placemaking, which is the process of working together to shape public spaces. But more than just designing spaces, it's about bringing neighbors together to create safe and vibrant shared spaces in any neighborhood. Finally, we have Cameron Scott, a registered professional planner and the manager of community planning at the District of Saanich. He has over 20 years of experience working with communities to develop strategic plans and policies, some of which are award-winning. This includes the most recently in the 2022 Saanich Housing Strategy, which won an award of excellence for its visionary and leading-edge planning policies. Prior to joining Saanich, Cam worked with the City of Vancouver and the City of Victoria. 
So to start off the conversation, I thought we'd begin by defining 15-minute cities. So I guess I have two questions for each of you. What is the concept of 15-minute cities, and what does it mean to you? Let's start with Carrie, then over, head over to uh, Cameron and Ray. Thanks so much. Um, so the concept to me is a return to a local way of life. It's really about increased community connection, greater amenities that are close to home, a strong local economy, and a climate-friendly um, way of living. So that's less car dependency, equitable access to services, and more capacity for um, sustainable transportation, such as cycling and walking. Yeah, and from my perspective, kind of adding to what uh, Carrie said, I think, you know, really the 15-minute city kind of talks about an ideal geography where people can obtain the majority of their daily needs within walking or, or biking distance. Um, from a planning perspective, this is really building on the complete communities notion um, uh, that, that's that been present in planning for a long time and just helps to add some more uh, spatial and, and time dimensions to it to, to make it a bit more meaningful. Uh, and, and certainly as we, as we look at building our communities and transforming them, particularly in somewhere like Saanich, where a lot of our urban form has really been dictated by uh, automobile travel. It, it means how do we retrofit some of those areas to ensure that people can meet um, more of their daily needs um, in, in close proximity. Right. And I would just, um, yeah, that those are great definitions. I'm fully in accord with those. I, I would just add that, um, yeah, the, the concept, you know, 15 minute cities is, is not really new at all. The phrase is new, but it's, uh, it's a, it's a term and an aspiration that planners have had for, for decades now, really from the Jane Jacobs kind of era of, of uh, moving towards or, or uh, desiring compact, livable, walkable communities, especially at the, at the neighborhood level. And, um, you know, this gets the different definitions and examples get thrown around and, and this term, the 15 minute city seems to have arisen about, you know, five, six years ago out of Paris, France. Um, uh, I, uh, a, uh, professor at the Sorbonne and an advisor to the mayor of Paris, Carlos Morena came up with this phrase and, and it just gained a lot of traction very quickly because it was a easy, understandable kind of phrase and sort of visualized, I think, what a lot of planners talk about for a long time. So, so in that sense, we're really talking about, um, you know, planning concepts and, and initiatives that have been around a long time, but, but there's that communications aspect that, that often miss is missing or, 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 um, you know, comes around and, uh, the right kind of phrase, uh, gets, gets floated and gains traction. There's a really kind of communications element there. That's really interesting. And that's, that's, um, it definitely, as Dallas said at the beginning, captured the imagination of a lot of people around the world and has been now sort of being adopted in, in different ways, in different places. One thing that I've seen on that is, um, people have asked, okay, so when we, when it comes to 15 minute cities, we're not talking about having everything in your life in a 15 minute city. And a good example of that might be a performing arts center or something. It's more of a regional asset that you might travel downtown once in a while to go to, to go to a performance. Right. So that's a great question to go ahead, Ray. I was just going to add that, um, urbanists have now sort of further define this 15 minute city into different shed levels. And so, um, you know, there's the, um, five minute walk shed in which you would have like, um, a, a couple small businesses in your main public square, but then you've got the 15 minute walk shed, which is more of a kilometer out radius wise, and that might have your grocery store, your pharmacy, your public schools. And then there would be that 15 minute 
cycling shed, um, which would then capture some of those larger things you're talking about, um, the cultural, medical, higher education facilities. And and so this is not at all, a, you know, a never go downtown again philosophy. Um, there's the different levels of 15 minute city. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, of course, you know, once a, I think once a phrase like this sort of gets captures the imagination and has a sort of general kind of um, understanding and people sort of adopt it, it, it inevitably gets un, unpacked and sort of defined and opened up. Um, and that, I haven't quite heard that, that five and 15 minute shed uh, walk and bike shed thing before, but it doesn't surprise me. Um, but I think at base, the idea is, yeah, that, you know, most of your basic amenities, the original idea as, as Carlos Morena talked about, it was, you know, most of your basic amenities at your daily needs or your sort of weekly needs, um, groceries, medical services, pharmacies, maybe a, a cafe or, a, and a handful of other things are available in that kind of walk, that 15 minute kind of walking distance. Um, and so, yeah, and so it's certainly not prescriptive in that way that, you know, all these things must be there and every neighborhood must have them, but it's, uh, it's more. I see it generally as a more aspirational um, planning planning initiative and and just a recognition that it's healthy and sociable and and uh, efficient to have for most people to have most of those services um, of, and amenities close by to where they live and and work in in some cases. Yeah. But Dallas, you're right. In terms of it, it doesn't replace those those regional or even citywide assets. And I think, you know, in Sandwich, we have our centers, corridors, and villages, which are kind of our higher order um, employment and housing uh, locations, and also where some of those regional assets are located. So these are kind of supplementing that. Um, and in terms of the daily needs, there may be areas where people can maybe get a small portion of their daily needs, uh, where others maybe they can get almost all their daily needs. And the idea is to incrementally increase that over time. Um, one of the points that, that Ray raised that I think is really beneficial about the concept is um, as a communication tool. Uh, I did the experiment with my 10-year-old son and kind of presented this to him and, and said, you know, what do you think? And he, he intuitively understood it where I think with a lot of our planning concepts, there's, there's a gap in terms of understanding between uh, the professionals and the community. So this is a really good gateway to help understand some of the um, land use conversations and, and how our communities grow and change over time and a, and a good kind of way to, to enter into that conversation. I think that's so important too, because I think we really, to have this concept be really successful, it needs to be a lot of small initiatives that come from the ground up and that come specifically from individual communities and that are really unique solutions to each neighborhood. And so I think having the community you know, on board and really understanding the concept is, is key to the success. Yeah. And, and just, I would just add in contrast to, you know, to more typical kind of phrases that have been used in the past, compact community, livable community, sustainable community, all very abstract and ill-defined, um, that can quickly sort of mean almost anything. Um, so yeah, just as camera said that the temporal and spatial elements here made it, I think, make it really uh, understandable and, and comprehensive at the same time while allowing some, you know, some flexibility there. So, and I, I think that accounts for why it, um, you know, gained traction so quickly um, in cities around the world and in the planning profession in particular. So at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, I was asked to write an article for Douglas Magazine 
And they asked me, they said, Hey, how is the pandemic going to change our economy? And so obviously I got out my crystal ball and I made these super accurate predictions about the future. Um, this was like June, 2020, right? Anyways, one of the things that I actually did predict, um, was this idea of living like a European, which was like, Hey, if I can work from home or if I'm in this hybrid environment where I can go to my office in maybe in downtown or wherever, and then work from home another part of the day, it's actually going to change the construct of, of how the local economy works. And therefore I can, I can pop out at the end of my workday and grab some bread and grab some you know, some fresh vegetables and make a, a salad for dinner. So that sort of idea of, of transforming, um, you know, the local level economies and making it more convenient and all that kind of stuff. But um, I guess so. So that leads me to, the, to a question for Cameron. So we've seen Saanich uh, post um, some communications actually saying uh, fifth, using the term 50 minute cities as part of the new OCP process or, or what, what may emerge from the OCP process. Um, can you tell us about what uh, what led to Sanich's focus and and use of the term uh, the fifteen minute cities concept? Yeah, um, thanks for the question, Dallas. Um, so, so kind of what I alluded to earlier in terms of the the notion of complete communities and uh, and that has been integrated in our official community plan for some time. So, this is a way to kind of build that, and take it a step further, um, and as Ray said, uh, those spatial and temporal bounds. Um, I think one of the interesting things about Sanich and um, you know the, the even that notion of living like a European city, I think there's a lot of uh, a romance associated with that and and wanting to get there. Uh, I think it's really important that um, we look at it uh, in terms of the context. And some areas may be really conducive to this, and other ones may take that uh, longer period of time to transition. Um, I think in terms of integrating the 15-minute city, it was seen as a really good uh, complement to um, some of the other directions we have in our OCP. So we kind of have four main strategic uh, directions or OCP. The first one is to um, focus um, more, um, uh, focus all of our new development inside the urban containment boundary. Um, so protecting agricultural rural lands. The second one is to really uh, uh, focus primary primary amounts of growth in our centers, quarters, and villages. Um, we have the notion of building a 15-minute city, which really helps to address um, some of those, um, those areas outside of our, our major growth centers where um, largely single family right now, but there's a, a strong desire in the community to see those evolve over time. Uh, I think one of the really critical things when you look at um, long long use land use change and how uh, we're looking to change as a community, a lot of those uh, services and amenities are really predicated on a base level of density uh, to allow them to function. So um, in order for, say, a coffee shop or a, or a local market to function, there really does need to be a critical mass of population within close distance. So um, a lot of the the thinking around the the 15 minute city is is looking at some of the services and amenities, but also looking at the complementary housing piece and ways that we can expand expand that out over time. Um, one one thing to note is 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 the the notion really is is aspirational at this point. So it it, it gives us a target to work so work towards, but realizing that you know we're not going to transform this overnight. Um, when you look at some areas of Sandwich, like you know using Gordon Head as an example, where it's a fairly homogeneous. Um, uh, land use condition in order to change that will really take some time. Um, so integrating as an aspirational notion and looking to kind of leverage some of our other um, key key planning goals. Right on. Speaking of Gordon Head, that's actually where I live. And uh, perhaps ironically, um, I play hockey at the UVic uh, rank, the, the Ian, uh, Ian Stewart complex. And I, I live close enough that I can walk there, which is a Pretty much the only place in Gordon Head that's within walkable distance, unfortunately. But but yeah, that's great to hear the the aspirational uh, side. And I think you know, as Ray said, it's 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 become the language that we can use to uh, 
to get people behind a, a vision, hopefully. And we'll talk more about some of the people that are resisting that that notion, but in a second. Ray, uh, over to you. So you're a well, obviously a well-known advocate for, uh, and a strategist rather, for safe active transportation. And we were just talking earlier about a bike ride that happened yesterday down 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 at Oak Bay about building advocacy and building awareness for safe, uh, wa uh, walkable, bikeable communities. Um, how do you think 15-minute cities uh, might handle these 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 sort of shifting um, notions of transportation and mobility in the future? Well, I think it's I think it's a, a good descriptor. Really, 15-minute cities is a good descriptor of of what in the transportation space that a lot of people have been aiming for and and uh, advocating for 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 decades in in Victoria and and Vancouver and other sort of Canadian cities to to um, build safer and more walkable streets um, and, and a focus on sort of pedestrian spaces and and generally the sort of built environment uh, a built environment um, that that uh, is is welcoming and interesting for for walk walkability and for people who want to get around on foot and also um you know for for people who ride bikes to to uh improve bicycle infrastructure uh in in our cities and and make them um more more accessible and so um and and uh, more enjoyable and for their places to go and i think well, i mean the way that i often like to think about it is is when it, when you think about transportation is transportation uh historically or the, the you know the old paradigm of transportation was about or sort of efficient flow of of um motor vehicles and and allowing people to get from one end of the city or from one town to the other in, in a, as quick as possible but in in recent decades and particularly with the influence of of Jane Jacobs but also uh you know a new kind of thinking around around planning and and advocates is think about transportation more in terms of access what it, what is it that people want to do um and how how do we get allow people most efficiently and and in the most interesting way most pleasurable and healthy way to access those daily services or the things that they need to do on a sort of daily or or weekly basis and and so the 15 minute concept really you know fits that um, that kind of thinking and that kind of change in thinking very, very nicely because it's really about not so much about transportation, but just about um, having having daily needs accessible um, uh, on foot and on bike or even by even by any mode of transportation, public transit and even by car. And if if uh, if our cities are uh, evolved and and there's more diversity in the built environment. Uh, mixed use planning, um, buildings that that aren't um, single use um, but are are uh, built in in that broader sense of of diverse sort of land uses and away from single family strictly single family homes or uh, industrial parks that are standalone places or um, then you have a range of sort of accessible services within close distance and proximity. All right, on makes makes sense to me, and it sounds great. Uh, and as Cameron said, even for even for children. So speaking of accessibility, so Carrie, um, given your interests in in designing places and buildings and the surrounding areas, and your passion for this, both as a as an architect, but now also as a as a city leader, 
Um, how can a 15 minute city concept address these, these issues of, of inequality, accessibility uh, for more types of people? Yeah, no, great question. And I think, you know, that's really one of the aims of the 15 minute city is to have it be more equitable and, and in, in such by um, allowing for the majority of uh, getting to all of your services to be um, either, you know, walking, um, walking or rolling. And so all ages and abilities cycling network is, is definitely a, a key part of this. Also, it's going to be so important to have increased levels of public transit. Uh, that's also going to be extremely important. And I think, you know, it really comes down again to that um, uh, individual uh, community engagement where you're really building from that specific community's needs out. Um, so, you know, one for one community, it might be having a large community food garden in the middle of their town center. And that's just what that community is about. Um, for another one, it might be um, uh, a lot of indoor um, spaces. And it just depends. I think, you know, we can't come in with this idea of, okay, every 15 minute um, city has this collection of, of 25 things that they all need. It needs to come from that particular neighborhood. We need to take the the loose concept of providing more amenities for people um, within that walking and cycling distance of their home but but it's but we need to then somewhat leave the concept behind and and say what is this neighborhood about you know but i also heard a quote recently where someone said if you so so like so take a neighborhood and there's and there's a neighborhood has ideally has services in it where you have cafes and and barbershop and all that kind of stuff and someone, the quote that I heard was, um, if the people working in those services don't live in that neighborhood or aren't able to live in that neighborhood, then what you have is a theme park, not a community. And and this is this is where I think um, we really need to look at that creative um, zoning solution. So what kind of, um, and this is where you have the, the bottom up and the top down, but what kind of mixed use um, zoning can you provide and policies to ensure you have your rental stock, your light industry, your artist studios, your low income housing, all included within the urban fabric? Because the 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 um, the thing that could go wrong is gentrification and is actually pushing people out of the neighborhoods they started in if we don't do this properly. So I, I think, you know, it does come from some top-down policymaking at the same time as listening to the residents and figuring out those unique qualities. All right. And and the uh, the residents and the future residents, obviously, that's uh, one of the hardest uh, perspectives to capture is people who don't live there yet, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and just to, to maybe build on that, if you don't mind, Dallas, um, I think um, yeah, Carrie raises a good point about the potential uh, gentrification of, of some areas, but there's also the ability to kind of have the the inverse response where you have some areas that are maybe inequitable right now in terms of uh, in terms of uh, you know what kind of populations reside there and, and demographics so you maybe um, if you're able to build you know something with uh, more of the attributes of a 15-minute city where you can actually have people that don't need to own a vehicle um, there's a broader range of housing options you may be able to to make that area more inclusive and certainly you know there's areas um, in Saanich where there's uh, you know, most of the employees come from outside of uh, of that area. So I think if, if if we do this right, then there's the ability to to kind of work against that. So I think there's some areas where we have to protect against gentrification, and then other areas where there's the ability to to broaden inclusiveness. Excellent, excellent point. And I, I just want to build on this by talking a little bit about uh, public health and a key aspect of that that that's really exciting to me about 15 minute cities, and that is. 
Uh, and I think you see it happen with investments in safe infrastructure with, you know, I, I was, I was even talking about this with the widening of the galloping goose trail. Right. And that is this idea of, of, uh, aging in place or, or healthy aging, being able to live in your neighborhood or longer, uh, you know, into, into aging. Uh, how does 15 minutes, this is sort of an open question. Whoever wants to, to, to start one, that's one, but how would uh 15 minute cities sort of uh, help us with a goal of, of healthy aging and aging in place? Oh, I'd, I'd love to take that one because that's uh, as my other hat as a counselor in Oak Bay, you know, that's one of the things we're tackling right now. And it's to me, the it's diversity of housing options. Um, we have so many people that live in single family homes that want to stay in Oak Bay and we don't have the housing stock of townhouses, um, condominiums, um, co-housing, co-op housing um, to the degree of, of demand that is there. And um so you either have to stay in your large single family house or you have to leave Oak Bay. And so I think that is one of the huge successes of this concept is it, it is about densification. It is about um, providing more diverse housing options um, where you can stay within your neighborhood, um, but but choose the type of housing that you want. And maybe um, just to add to that, uh, you know, I think one thing we know about as people age in the communities, so much of um, their health outcomes are dictated by social inclusion. And a lot of the what 15 minute communities can do is is really provide access to that. Uh, using a, a personal example, my grandmother um, had an apartment in James Bay, uh, a fairly rent out building, but she was had the ability to walk to get her groceries. You know, there was there were social connections around. She moved to a purpose built seniors housing facility that wasn't proximate to any amenities. And the, the health impacts were almost immediate. So it's one of those things where the housing is important, but we really need to be cognizant of everything around there and how much that impacts people's ability to participate in the community and kind of meet their daily needs. Yeah, good point. And, you know, I actually met, Ray, I think you and I actually met through the placemaking uh, network, Greater Victoria Placemaking Network. And one of the aspects that I, I think we don't talk about this enough, actually, in our society is this this idea of isolation and loneliness, uh, which actually becomes much more of a challenge uh, with healthy aging, right? As people, um, you know, lose a spouse or family doesn't visit as often and you get, and you come this lonely, this lonely epidemic really is, as some people describe it. Ray, what's the, what's the response to that from a placemaking uh, perspective? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, um, before I jump to that, I mean, I do think it's, it's worth asking when we talk about 15 minute cities, like what is, the, what is the problem we're trying to solve here? And, and, you know, the, I think, you know, what many planners and now residents are, are starting to realize, and this comes to this question of diversity of housing and social inclusion, um, is that, um, maybe without really intending to, uh, North American cities, just talking like North America, Canada for now, um, have built, you know, um, uh, particularly suburban areas um, that are, you know, single use, single use, um, single use land use, single family homes. Um, and there's examples, you know, in the Victoria area, Gordon Head, um, uh, but but parts of parts of Oak Bay and, and Colwood and things where basically, yeah, there um, we've started to realize that um, people can feel isolated and and uh, uh, socially um, socially isolated in those kind of uniform neighborhoods, and they don't have many opportunities to um, engage with others. They have trouble accessing those basic services 
Um, public transit services are often very poor in in some of these um, single family homes. So the whole the whole idea of a fifteen minute cities is to try and break that up and add diversity and add uh, amenities and and slip them in wherever possible um, through zoning reform and through um, welcoming different kinds of development and in doing so, sort of over time, creating sort of more healthy healthy access and and improve social uh, uh, engagement and connections that weren't there before. And I think placemaking and public spaces um, improved uh, parks um, for families and, and um, uh, uh, just meeting places for people of all ages is, is part of that, um, that we can do not, not in our sort of, you know, um, more popular downtown sort of areas, but also throughout the throughout the region. So I think that's really the intent there. Um, because yeah, the, unfortunately in North America, yeah, for decades, we, we, um, for complicated reasons, maybe we don't need to get into, but there was this sense of, oh yeah, you know, land uses need to be separated and, and apart from each other. But the result was that we built really like 150 minute communities, right. That where things are two hours away. Um, and it was difficult to access or to, to even do something, something as simple as get a loaf of bread. You had to get into your car every single time. And that's what we're trying to move away from now. And that's, that's sort of the brilliance of that 15 minute, uh, cities concept is to sort of reimagine that, that way of living. You know, I think about my, my own childhood growing up in a small town and, you know, after school, you would just sort of hop on your bikes with your friends and you would sort of end up at somebody's house it, it was different by the, by the day of the week and as long as you sort of called your mom before dinner time or showed up at home before dinner that was sort of your life it was very very much freedom and and then and, and nowadays it seems like you know we drive our, our children everywhere we don't allow them to ride their bikes to school or because of safety issues obviously uh, or walk to school and so that's sort of a, this missing element of, of childhood uh, nowadays it seems but um, I want to talk about just one last topic, and I'm going to turn it back to Ben to to uh, cue us up on the next thing here. But it's it's around the the economy. So I, I obviously work in economic development, and um, I, I think about it a lot and work on it on various different projects around the region. And so I, I have that belief that you know um, using you know you know the, our region is fairly fluidly integrated as one economy, right? But we have all these neighborhoods that what we're talking about in these 15 minute constructs. But how do we think? Uh, so here's, let me just throw a stat out here. So in greater Victoria, um, a commercial zone building will, will pay 3.7 times more taxes per square meter than a residential building. So that's the average around the region. So what that tells me is if we want to diversify our tax base, um, then it actually does make sense to pursue more locally owned businesses and more local commercial sort of, uh, amenities around the region. What are some thoughts on on how fifteen minute cities might might impact our our local economies? Any any thoughts? Maybe. Yeah, maybe oh, sorry. Go, go ahead, Trey. Yeah. You go ahead, Cameron. Um, maybe I'll start and then I'll turn it over to you. I, I think um, you know one of the things is that that can happen with fifteen minute communities, in addition to kind of the social and environmental benefits, is I, I feel like there there can be a, a local economies established where um, certainly the local serving goods can be provided. Um, and uh, and that can really you know help the overall function of the economy in terms of efficiency of access and things like that. Uh, I think one of the things we have to keep in mind is in order for 
a lot of those local services and commercial uses to be viable um, and you know constructed in the first place um, and operate. Um, there really does does need to be that that density around there to support those uses. Um, I know from some of our experience with previous developments, there there has been some resistance from developers to integrate mixed use into a project, and generally it's seen as a bit of a, a drag on the performa. So um, I think in, in 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 ways that we can through policy kind of incent that use, and then also uh, looking at ways that we can further support it by providing kind of that customer base within uh, ready access. Yeah, and I think on that, it's just, it's too getting ahead from a policy level, so we're not preventing great things from happening. So it's it's looking at those unique pre-zoning opportunities and making sure that we have policies where, you know, perhaps if we do have some light industrial, we have um, rental next to it. And how do we um, allow for, say, a new um, corner store or, or business to pop up? Like, we need to make sure all the municipal policies are in place so that we can be working towards these goals in an incremental way um and but i i couldn't agree more with the it, you need the density and the housing um to make all of this possible um and and really it's going to be uh, what that's going to allow for is just increased amenities for everybody right on yeah and i was um the the mayor of Saanich uh uses the example of if everyone's familiar with township coffee it's a a business uh, a coffee shop that's sort of off the beaten path i guess in Saanich and he uses that example to say hey you know would this be possible in every neighborhood in Saanich? And under the current zoning and current planning, the answer would be no. And so how do we, what, what can we do to make that, like you said, Carrie, the, the policy environment more conducive to something like this emerging um, rather than preventing it from happening? So, um, and what can I just add to, yeah. like, I, I think that we need to encourage um, uh, flexibility in design. So like it, we have a building being built, we hope it's going to be there for at least 50 years. So whereas someone may not, um, want to put commercial in, in right away, um, whatever we can do from a policy side of view to um, encourage the flexibility of that building to accommodate it later in its initial construction, um, you know, in things like work live and um, yeah, just looking at it from that whole lifespan of a, of a building and, and what that 15 minute city is going to become. Um, right on. So, so I'm just going to, we're going to switch gears for a second because we need to I guess, quickly address, uh, not to dwell on it, but quickly address the elephant in the room. And that is some of the controversy and the conspiracies that are emerging around 15-minute cities. And for some reason, we've, you know, certain people have sort of latched onto this 15-minute city. Cities like Edmonton, we've seen it happen where there's, there's uh, you know, some some outcry about it. Uh, Oxford, uh, even, even closer to home, we've seen picketing out, outside of some city halls around the region about 15-minute cities. So I'm going to pass it over to Ben uh, to ask a few questions around this, and then we'll get into the Q&A session. So for the audience, just think of some questions too, and, and feel free to put them in the in the Q&A function as we uh, get closer to the Q&A. So over to you, Ben. Great. Thanks, Dallas. So yeah, there have been a lot of controversies. I know even you know promoting this, people are saying, oh, 50 minutes cities are open air prisons, or you're not allowed to leave them. And so I was kind of wondering, will people be allowed to leave 15 minute cities? And is that even a concept around 15 minute cities to begin with? And that's open to everyone. Well, Ray, why don't we start with you? Because you were just in Paris, so you would have had to go through all the checkpoints, the uh, Orwellian checkpoints <laughs> to get around Paris when you were there earlier this earlier this year. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, you know, I've I recently just last week I was out in uh, going to Vancouver, and I saw I was on Highway 17, and we're on an overpass, one of those pedestrian overpasses. Some people 
holding up a sign that said 15 minute um 15 minute cities means open air equals open air prisons and that is the kind of the the seems to be the main sort of uh uh, point of argument that that some of these um, some people seem to have about about this 15 minute city notion and I don't know it's frankly I just say it's ridiculous I mean there's no there's no sense of of um, any restrictions here at play but um, uh, and and the whole the whole notion of 15 minute cities is to allow sort of more more access and more freedom to have more opportunity and and um, things to do and have more amenities near your neighborhood. Um, but somehow it's been twisted by some people, um, particularly in certain, certain corners of social media to, to, to somehow think that this is about restrictions and, and about insisting, um, that, that people can't even leave their neighborhood. Oh, they could, they're only going to be, um, able to sort of um, they're going to be stuck with or restricted to sort of move within a 15 minute radius of their neighborhood. And it's frankly just absurd. Um, but uh, unfortunately, yeah, in this world we live in now where, where disinformation is kind of opportunistic and some people kind of weaponize this kind of um, this kind of thinking for for their own purposes. Um, and and a lot of people seem to be fairly gullible or apt to sort of um absorb this kind of um this kind of thinking it's that's and it's it's pretty laughable and most almost uh, everyone in the in the planning and sort of transportation world were kind of just shocked and appalled and and found it pretty laughable that this this uh fairly innocent kind of planning concept um that has a long history and just a, a new phrase was sort of adapted and and uh, gained interest suddenly got twisted into something else a few months ago. So, I think the irony about it too is that these examples of um, where automobiles have been controlled, like the um, example in in Oxford um, where they were filtering traffic at certain times, and you know the example of in London. Um, uh, control around automobiles and city centers. I think the irony is that the 15-minute city, if done properly, is really about getting more people out of their automobiles and providing the transit and cycling infrastructure and that would then prevent the need to ever get to the stage of having traffic congestion issues that forced you to to look at, at control aspects. So there's a, a, a bit of an irony to that one for me. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I think a lot of the resistance is is the perception of a top-down kind of implementation of a policy and and restrictions to that for a variety of reasons. Um, I think one of the things to to really keep in mind is we're not looking at individual 15-minute city blocks throughout a, a community. It's it's more of an organic uh, expression where you know no matter where you are, you may be accessing your service daily needs kind of from different areas. So it's not like you're uh, a, a single unit where you're accessing all your services in there. It's more of an organic uh, experience within the city where, you know, every resident will have different means to access different um, different parts and, uh, and amenities. Great. That sounds good. Thanks, everyone. I guess I was also wondering as well, where do you think these strong reactions are coming from and where do they start up initially? I, well, I mean, the the, the speculation, for, just in my opinion, would be, you know, we saw through the pandemic there, that there there became this sort of like uh, certain percentage of people that just had distrust 
in, and especially in governments. Um, and we saw that with the convoys, uh, you know, like protesting mandate, mass mandates and health mandates and things like this. I think there's this sort of like trickle effect into other areas of society where we just, we've lost, some people have lost trust in government. So when government comes out with topic X or, or policy X, we, we, now we have this like, you know, air of, of grievance that we want to, we want to fight against it somehow. Yeah, for sure. I agree with that. That's, I mean, that seems to be just a, a distrust in, in authority and government and a big distrust in sort of, uh, mainstream media as well. And, and academics, um, you know, that's sort of pretty prevalent in a lot of this kind of thinking. And it really is, I mean, this particular 15 minute conspiracy thing is, is really just when you look at it and you dig deep and you look at some of the people who are, are, um, you know, glommed onto it, it, it really is. There's a lot of overlap with, with, uh, QAnon and convoy and anti-vax and, and all this kind of stuff and not, not always and in every case. Um, but, but definitely, um, it's just, it's just a kind of, uh, it really in the end, it seems to be mostly about sort of mistrust and distrust in, in authority and any kind of, um, new, you know, effort to sort of change, change the way, um, change policy or do something different or an effort by, by local governments or others to sort of initiate, um, some effort around, around planning or, or lifestyle or climate change or anything along those lines. Great. And then as well, I also wanted to go into some of the more legitimate concerns though. Not all of the critiques are necessarily conspiracy theories, but some skeptics maybe have valid concerns. And I was wondering what some of these might be directed to everyone. Yeah, actually, I enjoyed kind of diving into some of the articles to find um, that critique because it is, it's important, um, you know, to look at all perspectives. And I guess, you know, a couple of the different um, comments I found actually really helpful in, in thinking ahead to make sure we do the right thing. And one of them was the sort of homogenization of urban areas and, and everything looking the same and just... Um, again, we don't want a standardization of um, urban design and architecture in, in every neighborhood. That would that would be a complete loss. Um, we need to have, um, you know, that cultural diversity, um, creative and innovation coming from those unique neighborhood nodes. So um, that one I that one I took to heart as well as just the um, just you know the criticism of anything sort of a top down, um, you know, just making sure that that we're balancing that with the the ground up. Yeah, I mean, if I could add to that, I think, um, you know, definitely the, the equitable application of it and, and making sure that, you know, if there are kind of benefits being accrued that, you know, they're they're distributed throughout society and that each area really looks at um, how they can meet that 50 minutes city aspiration um, from through an equity lens and ensuring that, um, you know, some of those communities that may be there and, and vulnerable right now or, or or marginal communities that may, we may be able to include are are part of that conversation um and then the other thing i think that's as important to to note is just um uh you know making sure that um you know we're really focusing on the economic element of it and that that whatever concepts we're putting out there while aspirational actually are grounded in in um you know economic reality and that we're able to achieve that um and i think particularly as we look at applying like a European model to here in every area, you know, even think about Saanich and the, the diversity of areas and how we might apply this concept in different areas of Saanich will be quite different. 
and the you know geographic economic demographic realities are quite different so i think it will um really require working with the community and and like uh, like you alluded to dallas um working with maybe some of those communities that are future residents not residents now to to really figure out what that might look like on the ground I also appreciated the, just the general comment of, um, you know, we are coming from North American planning and this 15 minute city concept isn't going to solve all of our problems. We still have other problems we're going to need to deal with. It's not a magic wand, um, but it's going to, um, I think, really bring together um, a community consensus around preserving our natural areas and moving forward to create much needed um, housing and a lifestyle that people are really craving right now of being able to um, have a local strong local economy um, and and walk and, and bike as much as they can. Yeah, and I would just I would just add, yeah, that there's I mean, definitely there's, uh, you know, a concern or a danger that that this this term 15 minute cities be seen as something monolithic or something that is overly prescriptive or is the sort of overarching way in which we do uh, city building and city planning. And I don't think that's that's the case at all. It's a, it's a new concept. It's really just a communications phrase, a, a term, a way of understanding certain ways in which we can sort of and are already, you know, changing uh, the way we're thinking about transportation and thinking about land use and thinking about diverse housing tools. Um, but there's there's a tendency um, and, and some of this is in the conspiracy kind of thinking is like, oh, this is like some sort of overarching kind of top down, um, uh, you know, precept or, 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 um, something that's going to be imposed from above. And, and it's, it's simply not the case. It's just, it's just a filter or a lens to think about a whole range of things that are, are happening. And it's really maybe, um, you know, connected to or uh, in alignment with other way, other kinds of planning initiatives that are happening, like missing middle housing and diverse housing stock, um, all ages and abilities, transportation, uh, just dent, you know, in, uh, seeing more density and diversity in in our our housing stock and in the way we build downtown. So there's a whole range of sort of things that are happening in the planning profession. We see this in Victoria over the last how much victoria is sort of changing and and evolving in the last 10 to 15 years um but that's all in accord again with with you know how other cities are evolving and changing and there's all kinds of factors that play and 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 so it's you know i i, I think we should be careful about sort of relying on this one phrase um as as something that's um that that's the only way to think about about uh, the world of planning, um, because that just sort of t tends to lend itself to um, um, some of the the oddities there, um, these corners of the of the interweb and how they how they um, trying to understand the you know the way that the world's changing around them. Great. That sounds good. Thanks, everyone. From there, I guess we'll go into the Q&A section, and I'll pass it back to Dallas to moderate that. Yeah, thanks, Ben. I'm just looking at the question. There's a few questions coming in. Um, so I'm just going to, I'll ask this first one, um, just because we're on the topic of of sort of the concerns and stuff like that. And so so going back to Oxford, right? So, so, um, so this person is saying, hey, there's actually real world concerns because things are happening in other countries where 
things are being piloted. And so the example um, in Oxford, where the government is is perceived to be using uh, coercive measures to enforce top-down policies where planners have, uh, like a planner level, wouldn't have control over. It's sort of government enforced. And so they're saying um, digital ID, something the federal government has agreed agreement with the World Economic Forum to pursue. Residents will have to register their cars with the council and they will be tracked to count their journeys through key gateways. It's the social credit scheme that starts with your car and works like anti-frequent flyer points. So it's sort of a government disincentive of behavior, I suppose. Um, so they're saying under this proposal, if any of Oxford's residents drives outside of their designated district more than 100 days a year, he or she would be fined 70 pounds. So any any thoughts on, is that a legitimate concern or is this is this something that's being... Um, piloted and 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 in only a couple places. Well, I guess I go back to the, you know, the whole reason that that is happening and my belief is the reason that is happening is because we have too many cars on the road. It's not, it's not a government conspiracy and and so I I I think we need to make aggressive um goals as far as uh, like right now depending on which municipality you live in, um you might have between uh, 15 and um 25% of people that bike walk um take transit or carpool to work. Let's aim for 50%. Um, let's provide the transit and cycling infrastructure and the 15-minute uh, cities that that have it so that we have less cars so that we never have to go to a situation where we would need something like that. Um, yeah, I would just say quickly, I mean, I think yeah, the the Oxford example, Oxford in the UK is, is seems to be the one that a lot of people glom onto and my understanding there is um there was a an effort to um you know basically a proposal around traffic calming and what's called traffic filtering to try and reduce uh car volumes and call, car speeds in in certain parts of oxford and and um it's not so different than than really the a congestion charge that's uh in been in place in London and Stockholm and other places for a lot of years, um, where that's that's a, a different kind of approach. But trying recognizing that um, by charging a fee to enter into a downtown core, you can reduce the number of of cars and get people to think about taking other modes, um, particularly public transit. So, at a very local scale, I think Oxford UK. Um, floated this idea of of trying to traffic calm and and to sort of um, uh, keep track of of what you know and monitor what you know how people are moving through the city and 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 um, and not passing through um, certain parts of the city. And so that's and it, my understanding that's never been implemented, and I don't think it's at all a a pilot project. It has nothing to do with. WEF and digital IDs and all that kind of that's all sort of speculation again and and um, stuff that we're we're uh, that is is sort of been unpacked and talked about but and and but it's all it's all part of that broader conspiracy and that's nothing close to uh, what we're seeing um, uh, around this notion of the, the the concept of fifteen minute cities as a planning exercise and as an aspiration of of thinking about um, you know, diversity and, and access and transportation in our cities. Right. So it's sort of a separate issue. Like you see larger cities like, like London and 
And uh, we see it all over China, in fact, where they regulate the cars that are allowed to enter the city just because there's too many cars on the road. They have yeah, to say license plates, you know, you know are allowed on Monday and yeah. Tuesday. And then there's, yeah, yeah. there's sort of the, yeah. a reaction. Yeah, I, mean, I think in the, I mean, I haven't looked at it in recent months or whatever, but I believe, you know, the Oxford, the Oxford situation, it was, it was a proposal that was talked about and has been sort of walked back a little bit, um, partly because of the kind of overwhelming kind of reaction, but also because it was not, not really workable, um, even at the local level. So, and in the end, they're really, they're really just talking about trying to, um, contain traffic, um, and by, you know, and, uh, by having, uh, bulb outs and, and having low traffic neighborhoods by, um, narrowing streets and narrowing intersections and trying to make driving somewhat less convenient, um, in, in residential neighborhoods where, where schools are and things like that. So there's nothing really unusual about that. And we're seeing that, um, that kind of low traffic neighborhood or traffic calm streets um, being implemented all, all in cities all over the place in, in North America and here in, in, uh, in, uh, South Island as well. So I'm, I'm looking at the, uh, questions coming in. We, we probably should have jumped to them sooner cause there's lots, but, uh, we'll we have time for a couple more. So I'm going to start with a question from Kaelin Harris. He says, hi, Carlos Moreno introduced a, a, an important concept to enable the 15 minute city multi-use spaces. So this is uh, predicated on the fact that there are often public and semi-public spaces. Oh, anyways, there are semi-public semi, so public and semi-public spaces that are only used for limited parts of the day. Um, so schools, cafes, clubs, et cetera. This runs up against concepts like private property, single-use occupancies, et cetera. How do we train city administrations and communities to consider layering uses on spaces that are already serving neighborhoods? So that's an interesting question. Maybe I'll start on that one. It's it's a good thought, and a lot of us, as we try to make our cities more efficient, like things like that are going to be critical. I know um, uh, we do have things like schools are a great example where they provide uh, a, a community um, asset. Um, and oftentimes, there's there's uh, shared use agreements for the facilities, um, the the actual um, school grounds serve an important uh, part in terms of recreation for you know dog owners and and others. So. I think there's there's a there's a way that we could do a much better job about that. Another another opportunity in that vein is parking, where you have, you know, um, different parking demand for certain commercial uses versus residential. So there's a way to to use those spaces uh, more efficiently. Um, and then and then you know getting into the idea of the kind of semi-private spaces, ensuring that we have um, the right tools to enable accessibility to those at kind of all times of day. Um, you know, some of them you know, are, are not true public spaces, but they provide a great asset to the community. And how do we kind of optimize that in the long term? Yeah, I think we're seeing this more and more. And I, I don't think we can have enough of it because every great public space, you know, the rule is that you should have uh, 10 amazing things happening and, and attracting all ages and abilities. And we had a real success of this, I think, with the uh, building of Oak Bay High, uh, where we have a lot of mutual agreements um, uh, for spaces, there's childcare on the property. There's um, the theater, which is uh, actively used by the community, um, as are the sports field. So there's a lot of um, um, there's a there's a real sense of being able to walk in the door of that high school and feel like it's as much a community space as it is a school. And and I think the more that we can break down those those boundaries and provide that again flexibility of a building to have a at least a 50 year lifespan in which so it I can think that, morph and, uh, and develop. 
be used at different times here. a day. Um, uh, I know there's lots of questions smart. that we, we didn't get into. So I think Other that, th there's lots of comments uh, too about uh, pretty much just the time our here. people are um, sort of doubling down I know there's lots of questions that we, mistrust we didn't get into. Other thing, there's lots of comments health organizations about just our people are doubling down on mistrust in government. Obviously, linking this to the World Health Organization, people have how China's ideas are to have concerns about this, things. but at the end of the day, obviously, we think about 15 minutes all of these issues, issues about freedom. Uh, people have um, freedom for all types of people and we'll to move around around concerns about this, but and, at the end of the day, uh, I don't believe think about 15 minutes there's any is sort of about freedom, control uh, freedom coming to us and people to move around. And, not being and, able to uh, leave or not leave or anything like that. So there's any Anyways, sort of what a, what control an coming to us. Uh, thank you all um, for the amazing able to exchange of ideas and, like and insights so, uh, that you Anyways, shared with us today. What, a, what an interesting topic. Um, so thank you so uh, thank much. Thank you all um, for the amazing and, exchange of ideas and, yeah, and insights uh, that you shared with us today. Turn it back over to Ben to close um, us off. So thank you so much. Again, just thanks everyone for and, joining. Uh, thanks to our audience. Yeah, I think that's about it. I'm going to turn it back over to Ben to close us off. And again, just thanks everyone for joining. Thanks to our audience. Podcast wherever you get your favorite podcast on platform. Like Spotify, Great. thanks Dallas. We always so welcome your feedback to the Rising and Suggestions. So feel free to email us at podcast on southallandprosperity.ca. We always welcome your feedback and comments on our social media channels. Feel free to email us at office at southallandprosperity.ca. Thank you to the panel. Drop us a message on our social media channels. Thank you to all for tuning in. I'm Ben Wig. This has been Rising Economy. Thank you to the panelists. Thanks for all the great questions, and thank you all for tuning in. Goodbye. Thank you.